This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. In this seminar, Jennifer Whelan from the Australian Human Rights Centre and Madeleine Gleeson from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law discuss the Australian Human Rights Commission's Forgotten Children Report on Australia's treatment of children in immigration detention. Under uh, international law, Australia ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child in 1991. Um, we obligated ourselves to uh, realise the 54 articles that are set out in that convention and internationally we report on how we are realising those obligations. However, uh, Migration Act, our domestic law, provides for the mandatory detention of all asylum seekers who arrive by boat. Uh, people who arrive before 19 July 2013 can only be released from immigration detention if they are granted a visa, if they're moved into community detention or if they're being removed from Australia. The visa is a non-compellable discretion of the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection. People who arrived after 19 July 2013 uh, must be sent to Nauru or Manus Island. They have no... Uh, claims for asylum will not be processed in Australia and they will not be resettled in Australia. Uh, Minister Dutton reconfirmed in the video that was released today that <coughs> it is absolutely, definitively never going to happen. Um, okay, so the Forgotten Children Inquiry. Why have an inquiry by the Australian Human Rights Commission? Well, the first answer is because the Australian Human Rights Commission can inquire into breaches of human rights, which include the Conventions of the Rights of the Child, because the Convention is scheduled to the Act. So, as most of us know, our international human rights obligations aren't directly incorporated into Australian law, but through this way, the Commission can inquire into the level of match between our domestic law and our international human rights obligations. In terms of the timing, the Commissioner said by July 2013, nearly 2,000 children were detained in um, closed immigration detention centres. And they, the Commissioner said they launched the inquiry to investigate the effects of closed immigration detention on children, to assess the circumstances and responses of children to detention, and basically to investigate what progress had been made in the last decade. And those of you who have had a look at the recommendations from 2004 and the recommendations from 2014 will have found it depressing reading in terms of the level of movement. Okay, so what did the inquiry do? They visited 10 facilities. They interviewed 500 family groups and unaccompanied children, which totaled 1,500 individuals all up. They interviewed 38 individuals who had been previously detained. They had <coughs> five public hearing days and questioned 40 individuals under oath, including the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, and they received 230 public submissions, including one from uh, the Human Rights Clinic and the Caldor Centre in relation to the need for a change in guardianship of unaccompanied children. So the report was tabled on the 11th of February 2015. I'm going to steer clear of the political reaction to the report, mainly because I found it mostly disappointing that actually the contents of the report and the evidence base weren't discussed, so we're going to stick on that today. Um, I've just pulled up four extracts from the report. It's very long. It's, for those of you who have also killed a tree, that's, that's <laughs> how long it is. So 
it's really worth the read if you have the time to go through and, and actually read all of the evidence, but this is just a snippet of some of it. Um, I won't read them out. They're just to say that the top one and the bottom are obviously um, from children and the one in the middle is the reaction of parents to the distress that their children are feeling in detention. when we talk about young people, they should actually be talking for themselves and about their own experiences. So we included those as well in a way, just to remind us that actually this is their evidence and this is the lives that they're living and we really need to be thinking about their experiences when we talk about the legal reality and the policy realities. Okay, inquiry findings. So summarise them so that you can see what they are, but children and families have been held in immigration detention on average for 413 days. Over 167 babies were born in detention in the prior 24 months to the inquiry. For the first half of 2014, one in three children had a serious mental health disorder, that there are causal links between detention, mental health deterioration and self-harm in unaccompanied children, that mandatory prolonged immigration detention violates human rights law, that children on Nauru in particular are suffering extreme physical, emotional, psychological and developmental distress. That between January 13 and March 2014, 128 children self-harmed. There were 233 assaults involving children and 33 incidents of reported sexual assault, mostly involving children. Uh, the inquiry also found that the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection cannot be an effective guardian for unaccompanied children because of his conflicting roles as Minister responsible for immigration detention and as their legal guardian. Okay, so what did the inquiry recommend? So, tried to colour code it thematically. So, the red ones really relate to types of detention and length of detention. The purple relate to the right to mental health and education. Six is the independent guardian. And the green, I think, is around really monitoring and accountability. Okay, so the first recommendation was that children and families should all be released into the community within four weeks. Uh, second is that the Migration Act should be amended so that detention can only be for a min the minimum time necessary to do health and identity checks. The third is that the department begin processing refugee applications for some of us some of you will remember that they put a freeze on processing applications which set people in a, a long limbo. Um, fourthly, that we um, cease transferring people to regional processing centres unless we can be confident that people are being processed in accordance with the rule of law and that the conditions in those centres meet minimum international obligations. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about the Independent Guardian in a little while. Um, recommendation nine relates to... Uh, people with adverse security assessments who are essentially indefinitely detained um, in detention centres. Uh, I think the rest pretty much speak for themselves. Um, yeah, so any questions about the recommendations we can come back to at the end. Madeline. Thank you. So as uh, Jenny has pointed out and as you can see from the length of the report, there are no end to the issues that we could discuss and the problems with the children being in detention. Um, 
So I'm going to focus on one of those in particular today, which is about how the interests of children are assessed when they're being considered for transfer to Nauru, and why these interests are assessed differently from the interests of other children. And the main reason I've chosen to focus on this is because this principle of the best interests of the child is one of the most fundamental values of the Convention on the Rights of the Child and Protection of Children generally. And it operates as a, a reference point or um, a guarantee, in a sense, for all of the other obligations that states owe to children. Because, logically, if a state is acting in the best interest of the child, that would usually mean that they are ensuring their proper access to health, to education, uh, to freedom from harm, etc. So its importance really cannot be understated. It is really a crucial component um, of, the, uh, of the Convention. Now, it operates in different ways. Um, this principle, as, as generally expressed, can be a substantive right, so something that a child should be able to go to a court and get a remedy if it's not respected. It can be an interpretive principle, so that if a court is trying to interpret a law which has some ambiguity, they should preference the interpretation that gives effect to this principle. And it's also a procedural rule, meaning that whenever a decision maker is making a decision which will affect children, the best interest should be taken into account as a primary consideration. And that's what I'm really going to focus on today, that when a decision maker is deciding whether a child should be removed from our territory to Nauru, to what extent are the child's best interests considered? Now, the best interests of children are complex, dynamic, changing, impossible to say in the abstract. And neither international law nor domestic law tries to say exactly what is in the interest of a child. But what they do provide is guidance on how to assess what is in the best interest of the child in a given case. And I've pulled out four main features here. These are really the criteria that a best interest assessment must meet. So the first is that interest must be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. And the Committee on the Rights of the Child, which is the authoritative body internationally for interpreting the Convention, has emphasised that the best interest assessment must be adjusted and defined on an individual basis according to the specific situation of the child or the children concerned. And it can never be expected that a situation will affect all children in the same way or that all children in the same group are going to have exactly the same interests. It must be individualised. The second is that it's a two-stage process. And, and this comes down again to logic. Best, the interests of the child need to be identified before they can be weighed against other considerations. Um, and this, this is, again, straightforward, um, a straightforward assessment. And in this second stage, when they're being assessed against other interests, emphasis must be placed on the word primary. The interests of the child cannot be just another consideration in the mix. They must have special focus placed on them. And again, the committee has said, this strong position is justified by the special situation of the child, dependency, maturity, legal status, and often voicelessness. And this is a point that Jenny's already raised before, that the voicelessness of a lot of these children, this Forgotten Children Report was one of the first times many of us have had an opportunity to actually hear anything or see a picture drawn by these children. Um, if the interests of children are not highlighted, they tend to be overlooked. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. The third feature is that reasons must be given for any decision to outweigh the best interests of the child. These reasons should state explicitly all the factual circumstances. And the committee has said it is not sufficient to state in general terms that some other consideration overrides it. 
The process the decision maker goes through in identifying the interest for that specific child, considering them against others, and then coming to a conclusion, every step has to be clearly set out in words to establish that it's actually happened. And finally, interest should be assessed on an ongoing basis. So it's not enough that the first time the department encounters a child to make some assessment and then never do it again for that child. It really should be at every step of the migration process um, there should be continual ongoing review of what is in the best interest of the child at that particular point in time. So now if we look at a different immigration context, if we look at when the government is deciding whether to refuse or cancel the visa of a parent who has a child in Australia, how do decision makers look at the best interest of the child? And I've extracted here um, some lines from a ministerial direction which is given by the Minister for Immigration to the department officers who make the decision. And as you can see, straight up front, the best interests of minor children in paragraph C there are explicitly stated as a primary consideration. They have to be given greater weight than other considerations. And in the last section, you'll see that if there are two or more relevant children, each one has to have their interests identified individually. So what we're seeing here is a type of process which is generally corresponding to those criteria I've just set out before. Now let's look at the best interest assessment which is used for transferring a child to Nauru. I've extracted here three paragraphs that are taken from the front page of the form that decision makers use when deciding whether to send a child overseas. And the top of the form says best interest assessment. So certainly in name, it is a best interest assessment. But if you read through it, having recognised its obligations, the government then says the best interests of children are outweighed by other countervailing primary considerations, <coughs> including the need to preserve the integrity of Australia's migration system and the need to discourage children taking or being taken on dangerous illegal boat journeys. And as such, this whole process and this form does not consider whether the best interests of the child would be served by that child being removed to Nauru. So if we go back and consider this against those four criteria, we see that, as the Australian Human Rights Commission said in the Forgotten Children Inquiry, this is an assessment in name only, not in substance. It is not individualised, and we haven't identified the best interests of the child before weighing them, because before any child has even walked in the door, the government has already decided that whatever their interests are, they will be outweighed by these other considerations. <coughs> What's more, as has been mentioned, the government has been very clear that everybody will be removed uh, to Nauru or, or Papua New Guinea who fit the cohort of recent arrivals by boat. And so even if it was ever assessed to be most important to give effect to these best interests of a child to remain in Australia, there is no option for them to remain in Australia. The policy has no exceptions. And finally, decision makers are limited in their ability to make their own assessment about the suitability of Nauru, because in the guidelines on the last page of the form, the department instructs the decision maker to take note of various points about the suitability of the services and facilities and healthcare on Nauru. <coughs> and those instructions do not correspond with the reports that have been coming out of Nauru about what is really the situation with children. The decision makers don't have the opportunity to look at those reports because they are instructed by the government to take the government's advice on the suitability of those services. So what we see here is that's not really a best interest assessment. Even if it were brought into line with the criteria that I've said before, there would be other issues of concern. There's not a lot of transparency about exactly what procedures take place, but there is some evidence to suggest that when a child is brought back to Australia temporarily from Nauru, like the five-year-old child that we heard about earlier, 
a proper assessment isn't done when they are re-transferred back to NARU. <coughs> the idea is that the first time round we did an assessment, so we don't need to do it again. And therefore we're not having the continuous review that's necessary. Um, there are various other issues of, of weighing uh, integrity of the border and, and this idea of protecting children from both journeys against best interests. And I can come back to them in question time if, if you're um, interested in them. But I think this last dot point here really is the crux of the issue. Children's rights experts are very clear that the concept of the best interest of the child is for the purpose of ensuring realisation of children's rights. It can never be applied to justify a decision that will violate the child's rights. And that's a really important thing to bear in mind. So I'll pass back over to Jenny now to talk about guardianship. So again, just to um, put the voices of the uh, children <coughs> at uh, the forefront of our minds, these are two quotes from the report from two unaccompanied children. Okay. So, at the moment, under our law, um, Section 6 of the Immigration and Guardianship of Children Act appoints our Minister for Immigration and Border Protection as the guardian of unaccompanied children until they reach the age of 18 and leave Australia permanently. So the Minister for Immigration is both in charge of discharging duties under the Migration Act and the only person lawfully who can be the guardian of these children. So. For these children who arrive in Australia without an adult or a, a guardian of their own, he stands in the shoes of parents for them at law. Section 8 of the Immigration Guardianship of Children Act also provides that the, that act does not affect the operation of the Minister's functions under the Migration Act. So the effect of Section 8 is that his duties under the Migration Act, if you like, trump his obligations as guardian of the children. Now the department is on the record as saying that it's a, a perceived conflict rather than an actual conflict. Um, the question I guess was well, what the inquiry found and recommended was that an independent guardian be appointed. This is not a new recommendation, it was recommended back in 2004. There's countless reports now and academic articles which talk about the conflict, the, the inherent conflict between these two duties. Uh, just, it just for clarity, um, the minister ceases to be the guardian of children once they're transferred offshore. No children are sent to um, PNG, to Manus, they're sent to Nauru and once they're transferred to Nauru, the Nauruan Justice Minister is the guardian of unaccompanied children. Okay. The Convention on the Rights of the Child sets out very clearly what the obligations are in relation to guardianship and additionally the in 1997 the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees published guidelines which detail how the rights of unaccompanied children are to be protected in relation to guardianship specifically. So these six points set out a summary of what those two instruments require in terms of minimum standards for effective guardianship. The first is that an independent and appropriately qualified guardian be appointed as soon as an unaccompanied child is identified. 
that any guardianship decisions are in their best interest. Now this best interest here is important. Article 3 of the Convention says that a child's best interests are to be a primary consideration. Article 3 enables best interests to be weighed. The guardianship provisions in CROC require that for the guardian, the interests of the child shall be their primary concern, their main concern. It doesn't allow the weighing in relation to do we protect our borders, do we protect children. It's very clear that the child's views are to be considered in all decisions affecting them. Fourthly, that a continuum of care is provided so that the child's legal, social, medical, psychological needs are met by one entity, one group, until their status is determined or a durable solution is found. Um, fifthly, and really importantly for anyone who works in child development, that they're placed in an environment that's suited to their cultural and ethnic background and their level of maturity. And lastly, that there is no detention under any circumstances. Okay, so that's the minimum requirements in international law. And then, now what we're going to look at is we're going to assess the features of the Australian current model against those minimum requirements. So the minister is not an independent guardian and he's not appropriately qualified in terms of his ability to be a guardian of young people. Uh, the Minister for Immigration for Children in Detention delegates his guardianship responsibilities to employees in the Department of Immigration or if they're still in a detention centre to the centre manager. For children who are in community detention, the, Minister for the Department of Immigration delegates have the legal aspect of the guardianship duty and other organisations deal with the custodial, the day-to-day -day welfare and care of young people. So it's a complex model that we have at the moment, but at the top of that model, no matter how well-meaning um, some Department of Immigration staff are, they are still reporting to the person who's responsible for making decisions under the Migration Act. Um, are guardianship decisions in their best interests? Uh, no, there's an inherent conflict. Uh, for example, there's no independent representation, there's no independent advice given to young people prior to transfer. Uh, the most that's provided is an independent observer sits in on interviews. They can't, they can't answer questions for the young person, they can't give them legal advice, they can't access representation for them. So in terms of what a guardian does or what a guardian should do, there is no one at the pointy end when decisions are being made affecting these children's rights who is actually standing in the shoes of a parent and acting for that young person. Uh, I think to be fair, whether an unaccompanied child's views are considered in decisions affecting them probably depends on the relationship that they have with the person who they're working with. Um, I think it completely depends on the type of detention that they're in. Uh, there is no continuum of care in Australia. Young people can have, well, current unaccompanied children may have gone from uh, immigration detention to community detention. They have the possibility of being re-detained back into detention. Uh, they are not placed in environments that are suited to their cultural and ethnic background or their maturity. Uh, it's possible, to be fair, it's possible for some unaccompanied children who have been placed in community detention in group homes with um, uh, not-for-profit custodians that those, those home situations may be meeting some of those needs but those young people still have 
employees from the Department of Immigration as their legal delegate. So it's not a holistic arrangement and we detain young people. Uh, so in terms of what functions would an independent guardian have, there's been different models mooted in Australia. Do we have an independent statutory guardian? Do we give those responsibilities to the National Children's Commissioner, for example? Uh, I would say what we need to do is to start talking about or recommending that we need to have an independent guardian and we need to start having a conversation really quickly about who that should be and what the functions should be. So let's get on with it. Okay. They should really have two functions. The first is a custodial function. They, they should ensure that the custodial service providers are appropriately qualified and trained and that they are regularly transparently monitored and accountable. I think when you talk to unaccompanied minors, the majority of them would say that the service provision by custodians is, is okay. You know? <coughs> but what they, there is not at the moment is there is not accountability, there's not monitoring, there's not adequate complaint mechanisms. So I would say an independent guardian would oversee that system, which is really, on the whole, possibly doesn't need to be tinkered with a whole lot, although there could be improvements. But the most important function they would have would be to delegate the legal aspect of guardianship to independent legal representatives. And those people should be appointed from the minute a young person is received into Australian, under Australian jurisdiction, until their claim is resolved. So they have access to one person who deals with all of the legal issues. They should obviously act in that child's best interest. They would be advocating for that child uh, in interviews, in detention, re-detention decisions. They ensure that the young person's, that one, that they hear the young person's views and that those views are then fed into decisions that are made, that they can coordinate the case management, provide the continuum of care and prioritise the processing of claims of unaccompanied children. Uh, I always try to be really optimistic about change because otherwise, you know, why stick your head in a blender? But I think in Australia, really, it's one step forwards and two steps back. On the upside, at the moment, there are a whole lot fewer children in detention than there were at the start of the report. And that is a fantastic thing. We have over 1,200 children, though, still in community detention under residence determinations, and that includes unaccompanied children. And we have 2,760 living on bridging visas waiting, at best, a temporary protection visa, which gives them entitlement to live in Australia for three years before they apply for another one. And that's, that's, that's we're saying, yes, you are refugees. You arrived before 19 July, so we're not going to, in 2013, so we're not going to send you to Nauru. But even if you are a refugee, you can only apply for a TPV for three years. Still, that's good news compared to where we were a while ago. But in terms of the bad news, Madeline, <laughs> well, not, not that she's the bad news. <laughs> All right, I might try and um, cover these last few points in just a few minutes so that we can have a good amount of time for questions at the end. Um, but I wanted to talk briefly to the Moss Review. So this was the review that was commissioned into allegations of sexual and physical assault um, of asylum seekers in Nauru, um, and also allegations that some of those claims had been fabricated. Um, I want to speak to this issue for the same reason that we're speaking to the Forgotten Children Report, because the calling of this um, in review, the response to it, everything surrounding it has been an emphasis on the political um, and then dismissing of the findings, pretty much. And there hasn't been a really 
proper analysis of what this review actually found. And the reason this review was so important is because there was a big uh, difference of opinion when the Commission was doing their report as to whether they had jurisdiction over the children in Nauru. And they were prevented from travelling to Nauru and meeting with those children, so they had to get information other ways. By contrast, the Moss Review had far greater access to people in Nauru, and therefore its findings are really quite pertinent. <coughs> Quickly to the background. There's been a long history of reports of, of abuse and self-harm um, within both the Nauru and Manus Island detention centres pretty much since they opened. Um, this isn't particularly surprising to anyone. The reports have come from everything from whistleblowers to sort of you know, leaked internal reports of things to um, police investigating cases. It's not new. But there was a growing sense of urgency from about midway through 2014 um, it's unclear whether there were more cases or whether there was just getting more movement, but you had a number of submissions for Forgotten Children Inquiry that were starting to really make this point seriously that there are real problems happening in Nauru, especially for the women and children, and that these need to be looked at. Amnesty International said we're compiling more and more reports of problems coming out of Nauru. Um, there are reports that Commonwealth Ombudsman was looking into some things, and then on the 1st of October, Labor and the Greens demanded an investigation into these claims of sexual abuse against women and children. So there was really this momentum growing to have a look at what was happening there. And then suddenly on the 3rd of October, uh, the Department for Immigration announced that they'd ordered 10 members of Save the Children to leave Nauru on the basis of claims that they had been uh, encouraging asylum seekers to self-harm and encouraging asylum seekers to fabricate or exaggerate reports of abuse. Um, and so an inquiry was established. And this inquiry was supposed to look both into the substance of these allegations of abuse but also into whether, say, the children or other staff had acted inappropriately in encouraging self-harm. The review's findings, just in brief, were basically that there were both reported and unreported um, cases of sexual and other physical assault. And the language of the report is couched in very um, careful terms. Uh, Moss was clear to say he cannot know the facts of exactly what happened in each of the circumstances, but did note there were quite a number of allegations of uh, rape, indecent assault, sexual harassment, um, women being forced to expose themselves in order to have access to the showers, um, lots of stories of uh, cigarettes and marijuana being ex exchanged for sexual favours with guards, these sorts of things. There were a lot of these reports coming out. And now while he couldn't discount the fact that some of them might be exaggerated, generally speaking, the reports, the, the asylum seekers that were giving evidence seemed to be pretty credible and their accounts very convincing. Um, and he also knows that there was underreporting for a whole lot of reasons, underreporting. So whatever he found, there was likely to be a lot more cases of things happening. In relation to the allegations that claims have been fabricated or, or coaching of self-harm uh, and other allegations of misconduct, he found there was no information which indicated conclusively um, that that had happened and that it had not obtained any information which substantiated those allegations. Um, and he, he says, okay, you know, the immigration department say they, they were reading the signs, that they could see unrest forming, and, and we've had a number of incidences now where there's been mass riots in these detention centres, which have unfortunately led to a death and a lot of injury. And so they said, we were reading the signs, these Save the Children staff were agitators, and we had to get them out of there. Moss didn't think that the evidence could really go that far and thought that it might have been better to give the um, Save the Children a chance to address this. Um, but, but what was really important was this, that there were findings of assault. Now, the Australian government's initial response was, occasionally things happen. This 
this was in response to the, the sexual assault and the rape, etc. Occasionally, I mean, it's difficult to know what really happens in Nauru, but it is relevant that just in the last few weeks, a number of Nauruan workers um, have written an open letter saying, calling for a Royal Commission and saying the government has been aware of allegations of sexual abuse for at least 17 months and has not acted. So there's definitely cause for still more investigation. Um, here are some of the recommendations. I won't go through them so I've got time for questioning, but a lot of them involved the need to improve protection frameworks. And that was everything from service providers reviewing their guidelines to considering amending the Nauruan Criminal Code. You know, from the whole way through, the recommendations were that the service providers, the Australian Department of Immigration, and Nauruan authorities really had to relook at what they were doing and how they were going to offer protection. Uh, these findings have been echoed of, of the problems have been echoed by the Special Rapporteur on tor Torture um, on, and Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, who has said in no uncertain terms that Australia has violated the right of asylum seekers, including children, to be free from torture, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. And the Committee Against Torture has also made findings in similar terms, that the conditions in Nauru and Manus, for children and for adults, are causing severe physical and mental harm. So what next? There is a select committee that has been convened on the recent allegations in Nauru and they are receiving submissions until Monday and should report in June, 15th of June of this year, they should be providing their report. Um, so that's going to be another look into Nauru and really looking at what's happening because it's clear that there's a need for more investigation. At the same time though, just on Saturday, another group of families have been transferred back to Nauru. So even though we've just had the report of the Forgotten Children Inquiry and we've just had the report of the Moss Review, children are being sent back now, as we talk. Um, there's been a call for a moratorium on transfers, but whether the government takes up that recommendation um, is yet to be seen, but it doesn't seem likely. So I think now I've got sort of 10, 15 minutes. Um, we'd be happy to take questions. I, I guess maybe if we sort of keep comments and sort of things to a minimum just so that everyone can have an opportunity to talk. But Welcome. Any questions you might have? We might take we'll take these two questions together. So, you might. Uh, well, sort of a very brief comment and question. You referred to Direction 55, the relation cancellation agrees that the tax has also been amended, so now the cancellation is automatic after 12 months. Present sentence, and so the status of Direction 55 must be somewhat in doubt in terms of the process of looking at interested in children not involved in that. My general question is. Given one of the Australian government's strategies is to basically remove people from the jurisdiction, so to formal responsibilities, how do you think you might get around them in terms of the issues around guardianship? Because even if you've got a guardian here, it's not going to solve the problem, particularly for children stuck on the road. And I'll just take the question in front as well. Uh, yes. I've got two questions. Uh, the first one is Is there any pressure put on the government to have a royal commission into the whole? Uh, affair. And secondly, how did these unjust laws get passed, or get into the um, constitution or the government in the first place? Wasn't there any uh, opposition to it? Uh, like in the Senate or by the opposition itself? Thank you. Okay. Uh, the response to the guardianship issue is I think if we had an effective guardian in Australia, the prospects of children being transferred, of unaccompanied children being transferred to Nauru should be negligible. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that are this, you know, post the event. Um, I, I think it's a 50-50 proposition that we will have more people arriving at some point in the future. And so I think, you know, some people have said, well, you know, why worry about guardianship because the young people arrived before that's two thousand. No, 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 I know, but I'm saying people, are, uh, people have said, you know, well, they're going to age out, and that's the term that the department uses, so the issue actually is going to go away. And my response to that would be, well, if we actually had had a guardian, we wouldn't have these children in the room now that are living in the community, and as you would have all heard the news reports at the end of last year, uh, subject to violence, a uh, terrible situation in the room, but, you know, the fact that they have their own um, justice minister in the room who is the guardian, and there's not... I mean, there are positive reports about his, what he's doing with unaccompanied children. My focus would be that we need to fix our guardianship obligations here and then we wouldn't be transferring people in the future if they arrived. Not because of the separate jurisdictions. Um, and just on a similar point uh, with the best interest assessment, if the best interest assessments were being conducted properly here, it is very unlikely that any child, unaccompanied or otherwise, would be in Nauru at all. Um, and so for the Australian government's response to a lot of things being like, oh, it's another country, it's, it's outside of our jurisdiction, they're jumping too far ahead and they're overlooking the fact that there are decisions made in Australia by government officials and that's really where the focus needs to be on fixing that up. Um, in terms of the question about how these laws get passed, I won't try and tackle the whole issue of Australia's uh, approach to immigration issues, but I will make one point, which is that the obligation to take the best interest of the child into account as a primary consideration is enshrined in legislation in many other countries. Um, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, these types of places have a law which explicitly requires that to happen, and we don't have that in Australia. And this is quite a common thing with a lot of these rights. We say, how does this happen? How did a law get passed that allowed us to breach these obligations? And that's part of the problem, but the bigger problem is we don't have a law that protects them. And that's the issue. We don't have a bill of rights, but, but I mean, this protection could come in any sort of a range of legal forms, and it just doesn't really exist. And just to add to that, if you look at the, uh, the Parliamentary Scrutiny Committee, which is meant to assess whether proposed legislation complies with our international human rights obligations, there's plenty of submissions to those committees in relation to all of these amendments to the Migration Act, which say, look, it's flagrantly in breach of our human rights obligations, but the legislation is still going through. Sorry, what was there? Was there another I've got the first question. Uh, the, uh, that was one of the recommendations of the Forgotten Children Report. And Malcolm Fraser <laughs> has made it. I mean, many people have called many times for a Royal Commission. Um, and doctors on Christmas Island have previously said they have reported, whether it's true or not, that their management has told them, keep a record of everything you do because there will be a Royal Commission one day. Mm. And other workers have, have reported being told the same thing or just undertaken for themselves to do the same thing. Bring back to you, <laughs> I think we have time for one last question, so um, Tamara. Given that we don't have any legislative protection for the best interests of the child, what are the legal avenues? So, for example, the five-year-old who is currently in Australia and his legal team is trying to prevent her from being returned, what, what, on what basis are they applying? It's a really good question. I'm looking forward to when they file so I can actually read and stand in a claim. I mean, a, a, there are a lot of lawyers at the moment trying to agitate to bring cases. It's, it's difficult when we're talking about what's happening in another jurisdiction. People talk about, you know, Australia exercising effective 
you know, control over what's happening, but it's, it's, not, it's not straightforward. There, there could be a possibility that it could be based on a non-refill norm type argument that if, if you were going to say that the conditions in Nauru for these children are so damaging and so dangerous, threatening to their life and their very well-being. But no, it would be interesting to see what, what the pleading is saying. Yeah, I think we, we do. Having said one, we, we've got time for one more because the answer was very short. So, thanks. I just wanted to ask, I saw a headline on the news the other day that said that asylum seekers could be beaten to death, says the judge. And apparently there was a judge on the ABC explaining some new, something new the government's come up with and I'm, I can't find any information about it. I was wondering if you were aware of that or... And that's a fairly inflammatory statement, but there sure. must be something behind it. Um, I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe that would have been in relation to a new bill, um, which is the Good Order in Detention Bill, um, which is being considered at the moment. And what that is proposing to do is the Australian Immigration Detention Centres, not Nauru or Manus Island, the ones here, are operated by Circo, a private company. And what the bill is trying to do is to give them certain powers to use force or, or take other measures to sort of maintain good order within the detention centres. Um, that bill is not law yet. Um, many people have provided submissions on it. Fingers crossed, hopeful that with pressure um, there will be changes to that, very significant changes, I would hope. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything, but just the emphasis, it's not law yet, so there's still time to try and do something, hopefully. All right, well, let me um, thank our speakers so much for their insights and the really measured, methodical way in which they went through the various aspects that that they covered today. Um, so please join with me and thank you. And I'd also like to acknowledge um, Di McDonald and, uh, from, from the Human Rights Centre and Kelly Moore from the Caldwell Centre um, for all the work they put into organising the logistics of the event. And of course to all of you for coming along. Thank you so much for your time and interest. Thanks.